Welcome to episode 141 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest, uh, actually tomorrow, but uh, it'll all be pa- uh, patched together before you hear it. Uh, our guest will be Scott Charney, the uh, uh, chief uh, security strategist for Microsoft or something of the sort, uh, and a man who's been uh, uh, driving Microsoft. Microsoft in a more secure direction for years now. Uh, and uh, by for the news roundup by Michael Vadis, um, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, and Maurice Schenk, uh, uh, formerly in our London office and still associated with our London office, uh, uh, and a uh, director and investor in uh, European technology and cybersecurity firms. Uh, uh, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to step toe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. And uh, uh, I always look for a musical hook to begin our uh, shows with, and this one is no exception. That is, of course, Rihanna expressing the views that led to the Umbrella Agreement. Uh, and that's when you need me there with you, I'll always share. That's the theory. The theory was that uh, the U.S. and the EU would get together uh, and stand under the same umbrella so they could always, when you needed them there, be ready to share uh, um, uh, data about law enforcement. Uh, uh, and uh, the European uh, Parliament has now approved the Umbrella Agreement, uh, and uh, uh, all that remains is the uh, uh, for the two countries to wrap up the implementation of the agreement, which they could certainly could do before the Trump administration takes office. Uh, uh, Maury, I have my views on the umbrella agreement, but I wondered uh, what you thought of the uh, 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 the implementation of it. Yeah, Stuart, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Rihanna was involved, but um, <laughs> I I do think it's a generally a good thing. Um, I've been talking for a while about you know the MLATs, various kinds of law enforcement cooperation treaties, being a good and alternative to extraterritorial process in the, you know, in the cross-border environment and avoiding disputes like Microsoft had with the U.S. government over data in Ireland. And so this seems like a step in the right direction to deal with it on an intergovernmental basis rather than a um, extraterritorial process case. Well, I, I do. I, th- I think Rihanna plays in, into more than just her, her sentiments in Umbrella. Uh, uh, the, she uh, plays into this because the relationship between the U.S. and the EU on data privacy is a lot like her relationship with Chris Brown. Uh, and unfortunately, we're playing the Rihanna partner. Uh, um, it, this was meant to be, I think, an agreement in which uh, um, the U.S. got an assurance that its procedures matched the requirements of European law so that uh, data could be transferred without anybody worrying about adequacy. Um, But the uh, true to form, the European Parliament and the uh, Commission have issued statements to the effect that this actually doesn't require them to do 
anything. It's not a basis for transferring data. It's just some nice concession that the United States made uh, uh, that uh, Europe is going to pocket. And what uh, concession the, the United States made was to allow Europeans to bring uh, lawsuits uh, uh, for violations of the Privacy Act uh, in U.S. courts, which they couldn't previously do. And that had been a a problem in the relationship. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, at least when I'm doing the negotiations, I sort of expect that I'm going to get something if I give something. And passing a whole new law to benefit Europeans is certainly giving something. And it's a little unclear what the U.S. got out of this other than, you know, a slap in the face from the European Parliament. Well, I think it provides at least a frame... A framework. I mean, there is a recognition that the U.S. procedures, um, you know, give more than they did before, although that is, seems to be based in part on the Judicial Redress Act, which doesn't actually give very much, and provides a framework for increased law enforcement transfers. So it seems to me a step in the right direction. I agree it's not a complete solution to the problem. Yeah, it's a framework for more negotiations during which we'll get slapped around some more. Uh, uh, that's that's my sense. Uh, uh, but there it is. Um, how about the Investigatory Powers Act? Uh, uh, we've put that off a little, uh, uh, but it has now gotten royal assent, which wasn't really much of a surprise, but uh, it's... Uh, it's for sure going to be the law of the United Kingdom, and it, it makes a lot of uh, uh, changes in a variety of areas. Uh, what do you think um, the most significant changes are? Well, according to the Home Office, which is responsible for bringing this law into force when it's ready with regulations, the law is, is on the books now, but they get to decide when bits of it take effect. The only new authority is the ability to require big ISPs or and possibly small ISPs to collect what are called Internet connection records, which are detailed records of the browsing of their users. Um, but um, there, the, the law is sweeping, and a lot of it is said to codify a lot of other powers, and it really puts – I mean, it's, it's an interesting comment on the debates we've had in the U.S. that this level – of powers is adopted by, you know, one of our allies. It includes global law, lawful intercept capability, the rights to government hacking, the rights to bulk government hacking, uh, bulk data collection, collection of bulk personal data sets. Um, it's a sweeping set of law enforcement powers with sub-increased oversight by an investigatory powers commissioner. But um, I think U.S. law enforcement would love to have this kind of authority. Yeah, and uh, my guess is there's a sort of ratcheting effect uh, once uh, one one democracy has adopted this and the um, uh, technology companies have had to accommodate to it because they don't have a choice about obeying the law. Um, it becomes easier for other countries to adopt it and the, the outcry gets uh, less and less each time. Yeah, you know, we've said several times in the wake of the Snowden uh, revelations that there was a public outcry, but the government reaction was, well, I'd like some of that, too. Uh, and we're, you know, this is one step in that direction, and I think other... Uh, other countries are going the same direction. Yeah, I, I am struck by the fact that we are, we've been persuaded that this is a shockingly, uh, uh, controversial bill, yada, yada. Uh, 15 members of parliament in a 600 plus parliament voted against it. 
that that's it. Uh, uh, there were a bunch of people abstaining because uh, they didn't want to go on record, but uh, that that tells you that it was not popular to be opposing this, uh, except in the tech press, which would make it sound as though uh, uh, everybody in uh, in the UK was upset about it. Yeah, and I don't think it is a shocking bill. I think that was just the press doing what the press does. And as I said, the only real new power that you can say wasn't somehow authorized by existing laws, this requirement to ret- uh, ability to impose a requirement to retain Internet connection records. The rest of it was all out there in U.K. law before. The most striking thing is just to see it all in one place. Yeah, and, uh, I think that's right. Press something to write about. There is, there is, there is a provision that says if you can decrypt, you must decrypt. That is to say, if you're a telecom provider, uh, and so that uh, that idea, which is sort of in U.S. law but not as explicitly uh, as that, uh, probably could jump the Atlantic as well. Yeah, I mean, it, and that was there before too. I mean, the okay. ability to impose. Uh, decryption capabilities if you encrypt, not to uh, not to decrypt somebody else's encryption. All right. Well, the, we're we're starting to get some feel for what uh, the Trump administration's approach to cybersecurity will be, and we're getting the last uh, uh, gasps of the Obama administration's uh, cybersecurity policies. Uh, um, uh, the Trump campaign, uh, uh, in one of the few things they said, we're, this is what we're going to do, said it's, uh, the president's going to ask DOD to come up with a plan to protect civilian critical infrastructure, which of course is inconsistent with the statutory and the, uh, uh, practical division of responsibility that has been adopted up to now, uh, particularly in the Obama administration, which has given most of that authority to the extent there's authority to DHS. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what it means, really, um, and I suspect DOD is going to think uh, this is kind of a poison chalice, but uh, uh, my guess is um, this is just part of the um, president-elect's belief that if you want to solve a problem, you ought to put a general in charge. And uh, uh, Congress is doing its bit to add something to this. Uh, uh, they they are uh, they have in the National uh, Defense Authorization Act, uh, which is now law, um, uh, bumped the Cyber Command to a full uh, combatant command, uh, uh, which was sort of in the cards for a while. But uh, you know, uh, being a combatant command is what you most want to be if you are in uh, DOD, uh, uh, and uh, uh, now Cyber Command is going to have it. My guess is this is part of the process of separating NSA and the Cyber Command, uh, which a lot of people uh, and a lot of generals would like to do. And uh, not a moment too soon in some respects. Uh, uh, we're, we're looking at botnets that are bigger and bigger. Uh, what I'm struck by is the recent announcement that um, the Justice Department and probably uh, 20 or 30 other countries got together and took down an enormous and very uh, uh, dangerous uh, avalanche bot- botnet uh, and somehow coordinated with 30 different jurisdictions and took down um, a, a uh, an infrastructure that had, had compromised 800,000 victims in 180 countries. Um, Michael, you looked at this. What was the legal uh, surround to the actions that had to be taken across all those jurisdictions? 
we really have no idea at this point because so little information uh, has been released. The, the Justice Department last week issued a very short uh, press release. Europol issued a very short press release, but nobody has gone into the details of, of what legal authority they re, they relied on. So I think we'll have to wait. More more information is supposed to come out this week. So maybe by our next podcast we'll have something to go by. Well, I am struck by the the, the fact that they may they may have cooperated with 30 jurisdictions, but they they sinkhole traffic from 180 countries, uh, um, and so uh, somehow uh, the uh, a large number, almost 200 countries, uh, um, were. Uh, uh, had had remedial action taken uh, inside the territory of that country, uh, even though it's not clear that uh, uh, those countries were particularly interested in or even aware of the actions that were being taken um, uh, inside computers in their uh, territory. So um, it will be... Yeah, but I, the, yep. the Europol press release says that they had support of prosecutors and investigators in 30 countries. Yeah. Um, the victims were in over 180 countries, so I'm not sure. Well, isn't this the second time? Much- this, this is the second time in like two weeks that uh, the <laughs> FBI and the Justice Department have gone out and taken action that had implications that that resulted in code changes inside computers in in, in nearly 200 country, countries, and that. I remember the Justice Department and the um, uh, the State Department telling me, "Oh, you would never want to do anything that affected any computer in in somebody else's country. That's uh, extraterritorial and dangerous, and could could wreck relations." And here they are, twice inside of a month, uh, going out and either adopting uh, uh, investigative techniques, malware or uh, taking down botnets uh, uh, without worrying about, or at least not worrying very much about uh, what the consequences are inside the 200 countries that are affected. Uh, I don't know, you know, (laughs) I don't know how to respond to that because we don't know anything. So I know we're living in a post-fact world, but um, I'm (laughs) old-fashioned. I prefer to wait to know what the facts are before opining. Okay, we will come back to this uh, next week. Uh, uh, We do have one fact. Uh, We do know that that Rule 41, which was one of the mechanisms that was used to uh, uh, insert malware into uh, um, computers in a couple of hundred countries, uh, that uh, the, the Rule 41 changes to authorize that kind of um, investigative technique uh, uh, has been saved against uh, attacks by uh, mainly Senator Wyden, Senator Lee, um, uh, a host of probably a half a dozen uh, uh, senators who really, really wanted to stop that uh, um, rule change from occurring. Uh, all of them failed mainly because Senator Cornyn stuck around and objected to all the requests for unanimous consent and the like. Uh, uh, so we are done with Rule 41 changes, notwithstanding all the uh, continued uh, uh, complaining from the, the left on uh, the fact that the Rule 41 changes are taking effect. It is a strange thing to uh, have Congress not even weigh in on a pretty considerable expansion of, of search warrant authority for magistrates in a way that law enforcement expects to be using widely. I mean, it's a, and it's a result of the fact that um, these rules are embodied in the federal rules of criminal procedure, which, you know, the way they're passed is they come out of the 
the judiciary, basically, and the Supreme Court has to bless them, but they're really just um, the product of, a, you know, a, the judicial bureaucracy. Um, but these these are policies that are that that are laws essentially. Um, so it just does strike me as strange that Congress won't even. Uh, have a chance to debate these things. Well, Congress had plenty of time. They had they had more than six months, if I remember, to to decide whether they were what they wanted to do here, and they basically right. and decided, they, decided not to they didn't want to discuss them. Yeah, which is which you want them to be an abdication of their their role, which of course they can and and have done in numerous areas, but it just strikes me as. Uh, an abdication of, of their appropriate role. All right. Well, I, I, I hope you saw that uh, uh, CFIUS uh, uh, has taken an action that had not been has, has only been taken three times in history. That is to say, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States blocked a transaction in which uh, a uh, company, uh, uh, Fujian, a Chinese uh, company, or at least the subsidiary of a Chinese parent, uh, was going to buy a uh, German company, uh, 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 uh or if I remember right. Uh, and uh, um, it, basically, it's a uh, chip manufacturing materials company, uh, and uh, the U.S. government, uh, the president weighed in and said, no, I'm not going to allow that that transaction to occur, which has only happened three times in history, kind of a remarkable uh, uh, act, by, especially by a lame duck president. It sure hasn't gotten any press. No, almost none. It hasn't been widely reported in in the press. Yeah, it's uh, it was a surprise. The the last one, and the, there's only been two in 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 the Obama administration. Uh, the oh, the earlier one was much more dramatic. It actually resulted in litigation and uh, a highly publicized uh, decision by the president. Uh, uh, this one uh, is a, a sort of almost a quiet walking away from the transaction, as far as I can tell. Yeah. All right. Well, I said that the uh, uh, the administration, the, the Obama administration, is sort of serving up its last gasps of new cyber uh, uh, policy, uh, and that is a national commission um, uh, uh, chaired by Tom Donilon uh, and Sam, Sam Palmasano from uh, IBM. Uh, came up with a long list of recommendations for the new president, essentially, uh, uh, on how to protect uh, uh, the uh, uh, critical infrastructure. Kind of an interesting thing. I mean, everybody knew that it was going to be a lame duck report. It wasn't going to be released until uh, December of this year, well after the election. Uh, uh, But the... uh, uh, it, it appears that what happened here is that the Obama administration is trying to make up for what they thought was a bad policy process at the beginning of the Obama administration when they uh, decided they were going to come up with a cybersecurity plan in 60 days uh, and then decided that was really not enough time to come up with a thoughtful plan. So uh, as a favor to the Trump administration, the Obama administration said, why don't we come up with a plan and hand it to the Trump administration or at least the next administration uh, and then they can work from a plan that is produced in something less than 60 days. 
You know, I, my reaction to this is I, I swore a long time ago I would not take seriously anything that started out with the call for more public-private partnerships. Right? <laughs> well, because this happens. This, this, this is you know, all beyond, this beyond cliche. Yes. Just because they reverse the order of the uh, from public-private to private-public doesn't make it any more meaningful. It's a, it's a mountain of blather, if you ask me. Yeah, there's a lot of. I th- I'm afraid there is a lot of blather, and there's certainly you know uh, the 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 warning signs, uh, the frequency with which uh, private-public partnership appears are. Uh, pretty troubling. There are, there may be some good ideas in here, but, uh, uh, I, I think everybody recognized as they were putting it together that they didn't know who the president was going to be or they couldn't be sure and they couldn't, re- uh, recommend anything too controversial. Uh, um, so it's, it, it, it looks as though, uh, at least on first glance, we may get a chance to talk to some of the commissioners. At first glance, it looks as though it is, uh, uh it could have been done in 60 days. Well, and, and, you know, I don't want my uh, acerbic remarks to dissuade anybody from coming on to the show. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, beneath the blather, there are some uh, somewhat striking uh, specific action items, um, which, which uh, you know, I think are going to be pretty controversial, such as requiring that all federal government services uh, that are provided directly to citizens require some sort of strong authentication. Yeah, that was um, a good idea. Which, which is a, a big call for the government to get into the identity authentication business. Uh, having the government develop a cybersecurity nutritional label and rating system for technology products and services. Uh, I, I think that's also going to prove to be a pretty controversial idea. Um, and having all cybersecurity and infrastructure protection functions come under the oversight of a single federal agency. Good, good luck with that one. Well, in the Trump administration, that could be DOD. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, yes, I think uh, if the government gets into the business of authenticating users uh, who want government services, the next thing you know, they'll they'll start issuing uh, uh, plastic documents that authorize you to drive uh, on the nation's highways. And we, we, we can't go down that road, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, last thing, I think this is going to be a Trump administration issue, too. Uh, uh, the Iranians are up to their old tricks, it looks like, uh, uh, attacking um, Saudi Arabia's infrastructure and uh, not just trying to uh, deny service, but actually wipe out the data that's stored uh, on computers using the Shamoon virus. Uh, it could be somebody else, of course, but it sure looks like and uh, feels like an Iranian attack. Uh, and it, it, it may be an opportunity for the Trump administration to think about what's our relationship with uh, Iran in cyberspace going to be like, because uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is in many respects a uh, an ally, and uh, if we want to be a power in cyberspace, we're going to have to protect our allies as well as ourselves. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one since um, you know, in, the incoming Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, is, has uh, uh, has been one of the people who has has held Iran out as as one of, if not the principal adversary to the United States and and you know most serious um, threats to our security. On the other hand, you have the, the president-elect who said allies like. Saudi Arabia are going to have to, to pay us to defend them before, you know, or we're just going to sort of stop defending them. Uh, so there's, you know, an interesting 
um, conflicting uh, pressures, I think, within the within the incoming administration on this. Well, we will find out sometime soon uh, in just uh, less than six weeks. Uh, so let's jump into our interview with uh, Microsoft's Scott Charney. So we're here today with Scott Charney, uh, who is the Corporate Vice President for Microsoft's Trusted Computing Group. Trustworthy Computing Trustworthy Group, yes. Computing, yes, uh, uh, and uh, somebody who I have known uh, and uh, uh, argued about cybersecurity issues with since 1992. <laughs> kind of hard to believe. We're that old. Yes, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, and... Um, Actually, I have a present for you. Uh, oh. We have a new policy uh, um, for people who come to the studio for uh, for these interviews. We have a lovely Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast cup complete wow. with the logo. Uh, oh, thank you. And That's terrific. Especially for you, a hat from the 1990s that I found under my desk uh, uh, celebrating Steptoe's E-Team, which you can oh, wear yeah. uh, while running. Because uh, it looks like you're still, you're still running, aren't you? Uh, so the, for, for the people who are listening to this podcast, there's a, it's a great cap with a key on it, which makes you think of cryptography. Of exactly. <laughs> so are you, what are you doing for, for exercise? Uh, elliptical trainer. Ah, uh, me too. Torn uh, meniscus, give up the running yeah, on concrete. Yeah, no, kind of thing. Uh, me too. But well, I I do it uh, in part so I can keep reading while working out uh, oh. uh, because of course uh, there aren't enough good podcasts to listen to podcasts. <laughs> but of course we'll fix that now. <laughs> exactly, that's yeah. the plan. So um, you've got this. Great perspective. You ran uh, CSIPs at the Justice Department, the, the computer crime section, for eight years, 91 to 99, and then went on to PwC and then to Microsoft. So you've been in cybersecurity uh, uh, that whole time uh, and had a great perch. Uh, if I remember right, you were uh, in the middle of the negotiation of the Bucharest Convention. Is that right? Uh, yes, and I chaired the G8 subgroup on high-tech crime, which was the first real international effort, and many of the principles adopted by the G8 became operational in the Budapest Convention. Uh, Budapest, sorry. Uh, and... Um, uh, one of the secrets of CSIPs in early years was you didn't have that many cases you had to try, so you could give a lot of speeches, and uh, you were really the attorney general's uh, uh, tech advisor, tech policy advisor, and uh, uh, shaped our international approach to uh, international uh, issues. And you've continued that uh, at Microsoft. Uh, and so let me let me just ask, uh, where? What are the big trends that you've seen over the last 25 years internationally uh, in terms of cybersecurity and uh, the approach <clears throat> the approach that companies the countries are taking to um, uh, big tech developments? Well, I think one of the biggest changes is the recognition by governments around the world that ICT information and communications technology is critical to public safety and national security. And if country A wouldn't buy their fighter jets from country B, then why should you buy your ICT from a country that might have potentially adversarial interest to you? And as a result of that, you see a term from the 1960s making a big comeback, which is this idea of uh, software assurance mm -hmm. and ICT assurance more broadly. It's not just about box products. It's about cloud and services. And so more and more countries around the world 
are looking at, you know, domestic storage of data, indigenous innovation, um, and challenging the notion that, you know, build one, sell everywhere is just going to continue to work. But it's so, so much cheaper. I mean, the idea that uh, Brazil's going to have its own operating system by, and build a whole series of applications that run on that operating system is, uh, uh, it would be delusional, wouldn't it? Yes, and that is exactly the conflict, which is, uh, you know, most countries in the world could not create uh, a complete supply chain from end to end. It's questionable whether any country could actually do it. I think China's going to try. Well, but even then, you know, the reality is that um, the pace of innovation that you see around the world, no country has a monopoly on innovation. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, well, we're only going to use our own stuff, and if some wonderful thing happens somewhere else, you're just going to let it pass your people by? I mean, that's not going to work. So the real challenge is, though, you can't ignore the reality of the geopolitical conflict, some of the hacker attacks we've seen that have crossed borders. So the question for the ICT industry is how do you give people higher levels of assurance Mm -hmm. that – uh, the product that they're using is trustworthy. And I will point out, um, I've written a paper years ago on supply chain, and one of the important challenges is to recognize how componentized and global the supply chain really is. And, you know, sometimes you talk to a customer and they go, well, Windows is made in America. And I go, yes, by Russians, Chinese, Americans, Israelis, French, Germans, I mean, come to campus. Right. We're just a hodgepodge and, of and bright I'm people. I'm sure you have uh, software centers uh, around the world, so it's it's compiled in uh, uh, Redmond. But well, it's a lot of our development is done there. But we, yes, we do have development centers in other parts of the world as well. Um, and it really is a global supply chain. And then when you add the hardware parts yep. to it and everything else. Oh, and the firmware that's loaded on the the, the hardware subcomponents. Yeah. Right. And this is why, you know, managing the supply chain is such a challenging problem. It's international, it's componentized, it's opaque. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so therefore one of the big challenges for the ICT industry is to um, be transparent and provide enough controllability of technology that customers feel comfortable. So, for example, um, there's something called the Trusted Platform Module, a TPM, right. which is the hardware root of trust um, that enables a lot of security. And TPM 1.2 used the SHA-1 algorithm, which, right. which is, is running end of yeah. life anyway. But TPM 2.0 has crypto agility. That is, a country can say to their TPM provider, um, I want this – so the U.S. can say I want AES and TPM. Right. Um, but China can say we want SMX and TPM. And other do, they, do they both sit in the TPM at the same time? No, no. It's when you it's buy when your you, product, when you, you, get to, it. you get choice mm-hmm. and controllability. And so – and then transparency. You know, Microsoft has made its source code available to governments for a very long time. And more recently, we've opened up transparency centers around the world because government said to us, that's a lot of code to review. We need to run tools against code. And we're like, okay, we understand that, but we need to do it in a secure environment. So we created transparency centers where governments can run in and run tools against code. And, and they bring their own tools? Yeah, they can bring their own tools. And they, um, the, the real you know important part of this is that you, this is about risk management, not risk elimination. But one way to uh, think about it is you want to manage as much risk as you feasibly can. So your residual risk, the risk you accept, is as small as right. the customer is comfortable with. And by giving them transparency, 
into how a product and services work and giving them controllability of certain key aspects of it that are of most concern to them, hopefully you can reach a point where they go, okay, yes, it is very um, cost-effective. There's incredible innovation and productivity. And now the security risk is managed well enough that we feel comfortable. That we, we, we tried to surprise you. We tried to find things that uh, uh, we were worried about. We didn't find them, so uh, we're going to provisionally trust you. Right, and I also think it's important to separate out mass market commercial products from other kinds of products. And what I mean by that is there are companies that build special purpose products, for example, for the U.S. military. Right. And you could understand why other governments wouldn't want to buy that any more than the U.S. would want to buy something made in a foreign land for a foreign government. But when you're a mass market commercial product provider, right. when you're a Microsoft and a Cisco and Adobe, you know, the whole world is riding on your stuff. Right. And a threat to your stuff is a threat to everyone. Right. And therefore, you have to think differently about, you know, uh, the problem. So for us, uh, when, when one country attacks another country, that's one customer attacking another customer. <laughs> yes, and that second customer may call us up and say, hey, we're under attack and, you know, they're exploiting something and, you know, a Microsoft product, can you help? And our answer is, of course, your customer will support you. And so we're in a fundamentally different position. And one of the things that we keep reminding governments of is that, you know, if we put a backdoor in a product for any government, our entire business model is finished. Um, and it's not only that you couldn't sell anywhere, you couldn't even sell at home. Right. You just, you lose everyone's trust. So even if you, you know, think, well, you would do that bad, it's economic suicide. Right. To allow that and, kind and of thing. And that's been Microsoft's policy since the 90, uh, 1990s, if I remember. I mean, they've, they've faced this hostility and suspicion probably earlier than most, uh, uh, U.S. companies. And it's, uh, they've always been nervous about the possibility that they'd be tagged as having gotten too close to the National Security Agency or some other American uh, uh, governmental agency. Well, then that was the genesis of the GSP program was foreign government saying, you must have back doors in for the NSA. And right. they, no, we wouldn't do that. Well, you say that, but okay, let's open up the kimono. Let's show us Let's show you the source code so you can so, see. So, how, which which countries have transparency centers, and and are they are those the countries that have been most insistent on wanting to be able to do their own verification? No, it doesn't quite work that way in the sense that um, we have a public website with the government security program. You can see what countries are in it. Many countries are, but the transparency centers we opened more on a regional basis. Mm -hmm. um, so there's one in Brussels for European countries. There's one in Redmond. Yeah. Um, there's one in Singapore, there's one in Brazil, there's one in Russia. I mean, so we open them up, but it's not, um, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping. You're not right. going to open a transparency center in every country. You want, though, countries that are in the GSP program to have access to a transparency center. So I've, I've spent time with other governments, uh, in some cases, trying to persuade them that uh, uh, there aren't backdoors in a lot of these products for the reasons that you have suggested. And they are always very polite, and then they take the companies aside and say, we know there's a back door, show it to us. Uh, uh, so you must get continuing mistrust, probably because if their companies were making software the world was using, they'd expect their companies to put back doors in for them. Well, as you know, you know, in the United States, um, 
companies often fight with their government. Yes. And, and um, you know, sometimes... I, I, you want to see my scars? <laughs> right. And you have many of them uh, from your days. Uh, but, you know, you look at the debate over cryptography between uh, the FBI and Apple, for example, and sometimes people lose sight of the fact that it's not in every country in the world that you can have such a public discussion right. between the leader of an agency responsible for protecting public safety and national security and a, and a leader of a large company. Well, I, I called out Tim Cook. I said, you know, where's your brave uh, uh, stand against uh, um, misuse of IT for uh, authoritarian purposes in China? You know, I, there, surely I saw a, a, a public release in which you told the Chinese you wouldn't put backdoors into your product for them. You wouldn't install their uh, the hacked uh, crypto. Uh, uh, and, of course, there is no such uh, open letter because uh, uh, they couldn't get away with it there. Well, we've, we've been very vocal, um, and I've you know, often given keynotes at RSA. We do defense, not offense. Mm-hmm. And we have, I just came back from Geneva. Uh, we have to be Switzerland in the world of IT. You know, we have to be neutral. Um, because essentially, as I said earlier, governments attacking other governments is customers attacking customers. And we can't play favorites in that way. And as long as we're focused on protecting the ecosystem and focused on defense, um, it's the only way you can stay in business as a global provider of ICT products. So you, one of the things that you've uh, – well, actually, let me ask about that. Uh, I understand what uh, – you know, China is very concerned about this, and their response seems to be uh, a drive t- toward a kind of uh, a tech autarky where they'll, uh, they'll slowly push out um, the big U.S. companies that they're currently relying on. And I think Cisco is taking the brunt of that effort right now. Um, a, the Europeans reacted badly to Snowden as well, as did Brazil. Uh, um, I I wonder whether there's been much of an impact on companies. I think, you know, my sense is the only companies that really took a hit as a result of Snowden commercially um, were the big cloud providers. And, of course, Microsoft has been enormously successful in, in providing cloud, uh, I think still bigger than Google, if I remember right. Uh, um, a, and even there, my sense is that uh Companies have found ways to accommodate concerns mainly by moving data centers to countries that are particularly worried about uh, espionage and then maybe putting a uh, uh, an agent in place who will uh, oversee data withdrawals to make sure that uh, uh, German law is adhered to. Uh, um, is that the biggest impact or has there been some loss of sales that I missed? Uh, you know, it's hard to measure. I mean, in the post-Snowden um, period, of course, I go to Europe all the time. And customers um, did express concerns mm-hmm. about U.S. access to their data. Um, and part of it was um, getting customers to start thinking about government access as a business risk. Right. Because I would sometimes sit down with CISOs in, in um, countries, and they would say, we don't want to move to the cloud because the U.S. government won't get our data. And I'd say... You know, you're running unpatched XP, <laughs> um, and you make whatever product you make, you know, this toy, mm-hmm. um, and you have all these credit card numbers and other kinds of things, 
And you don't want to move the data to the cloud because you're afraid the U.S. government's going to get it. Well, we have to fund our deficit somehow. Um, <laughs> you know, and actually government access is a business risk. Yeah. Um, it's one of many. Right. And, and you, have, not to, you be, have to have real, be realistic about what the risks are and how much you're going to spend to avoid them. Uh, as opposed to, this is more a kind of talking point from people who remember what they read in the papers the night before. Um, yeah, I think that's right. As people, and, and that's my sense is U.S. cloud companies are so cheap compared to their competitors because of scale, um, that it forces people to ask the question, is this just a prejudice uh, against U.S. companies or is there a real risk? And my sense is most of them conclude it's just a prejudice and the ones who think that it's a, a, a real risk deal with it in the way I've described by putting in structures that they think will make it much more difficult for espionage to be carried out based on U.S. connections to the companies that are providing the cloud. I think that's true, but it's also important. It's not just the low cost. It's the ability to light up these scenarios through cloud-based services and more intelligent computing that are really amazing. I mean, uh, something we call in the security business cloud effect. I'll give you an example. So as you know, like in the U.S., there's uh, ISAC's information mm -hmm. sharing analysis centers. And the theory, of course, is that if an organization sees an attack, they tell the ISAC, and the ISAC tells the other people in the organization, and they all go look for it, right? And the ISACs usually have the bigger players, you right. know, and not all the little players who might be in the industry. It doesn't scale that way. Now you turn around and look at um, security in the cloud, and we can strip off an attachment from your Office 365 email and mm -hmm. run it in a virtual machine and see if it is actually malware. And if it is, we can then look for it for, uh, throughout the cloud. Right. So if we see a bank is attacked, we can protect all the other banks right away, no information sharing, big, small, doesn't matter. And by the way, not just the banks, you can protect everybody. Right. And so you, you know, and then just for productivity, it's not just about, you know, driving down costs, but uh, efficient management. You know, you can patch the cloud much more easily than all these on-prem systems. The ability to take big data and do analytics and get insight from data, not just security data, but working data, you know, repairs and, you know, just-in-time delivery of services and all sorts of things. And so I think more and more companies are realizing that the cloud has this amazing ability to transform their business in interesting ways. And they give that up if they say, no, I got to stay on prem because the, you know, a government might get access to my data. But, you know, it's one thing to have like cloud computing where you can put virtual machines and Azure gives you that. Uh, and it strikes me that uh, the idea that there's going to be some espionage system run because uh, it's an American cloud company is improbable. Uh, but, if you're talking about Office 365 uh, or something else, is it 360, 365? Office 365. Okay. Um, a, that uh, where you actually have to administer the email, which means you have to you have to strip off all of the attachments and look at them in some sense. Uh, they absolutely have to trust you as a company uh, with access to all of their communications. So what, what do you do to deal with that? That's not a technical trust issue. That's a, a kind of 
uh, human and corporate trust issue. Right. Interestingly enough, in my conversations with customers, that's not the trust issue they worry about. Like we have a good brand. Right. And we do have a lot of policies and governance. We are very transparent and open. Right. Their concern is less that we're untrustworthy. But that we have to honor the laws in all the countries where right, we that do you're going to get a subpoena saying you must cough this up. Right. And that's not just for foreign right. companies, but even domestic companies. Because one of the challenges is as this data moves to the cloud is the government comes to the cloud provider to get the data. Right. And sometimes with non-disclosure orders. Right. And companies, even American companies, will say in the old world, um, if the government wanted my data, they'd have to come to me to get it. Well, and when actually, they, in, in real in, in the real world, they would come to the, your chief security officer, say, "Don't tell the CEO," uh, and he would say, "Yes, sir," because he used to work at the bureau. But well, uh, you're a little <laughs> more cynical than I am. Um, uh, I like to think they that would these have paper. people they would paper it. They would well, bag, gag order him. But I bet you the general counsel might have seen that paper as well. Yeah. Possibly, yes. And therefore represented their interests and made sure the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and all of that good stuff. And the concern now for companies is in that old world, someone in the company would have known and there probably would have been some legal engagement. And here now you're going to get the paper and we'll never know. And but surely you have a contractual obligation to fight subpoenas to the extent uh, uh, possible and to provide notice to the extent possible. And we have been suing the government in some highly yes, that's noted right. cases like the Irish Data Center and the declaratory judgment action. But that doesn't mean you can always sue the government every time you get a piece of paper. Right. And, you know, you can get a completely valid piece of paper where there's no legal grounds to necessarily contest it. And the point is, if that legal paper had gone to the customer, then the customer would know that they're being investigated, the general counsel might be engaged, et cetera. When it comes to the cloud provider, now they're being investigated and they have no notice. And, you know, it's very interesting when you look at U.S. v. Jones, the case with Mm -hmm. the tracker on the car, where Justice Sotomayor in concurrence said, you know, in the old days, our, the doctrine from Smith v. Maryland is when you give information to a third party, you lose your constitutional expectation of privacy, Smith v. Maryland being the uh, yep. telephone numbers dialed case. And she said, in today's world, all your data goes to a third party all the time. Right. What you're searching for, where your emails are stored, your GPS location. So what does that mean for constitutional expectations of privacy in a cloud-based world? You have fewer. That's my view. I, I think she's, she's, she's going down a box canyon with, with the idea that instead of asking, did you give this data away to somebody without any guarantees that uh, it was going to be protected? Uh, instead, to say, well, just how creepy is it that the government might get that? It, it, because who knows what's going to be creepy to five members of the Supreme Court? Uh, no, no, but we could be more innovative about saying, if we believe that the old system actually preserves some rights, not to mention the um, revenue of attorneys like yourself, <laughs> um, are there other ways to think about it? So, for example... Um, could Congress say, when you go to a cloud provider and subpoena data or uh, give a search warrant for data with a non-disclosure order, you also have to tell the general counsel of the targeted company if they meet certain criteria? Like, certainly, if they're well, completely write, a small, corrupt right. organization, right. nobody would advocate they'd be told. 
But when you're, you know, seeking information on a Fortune 50 company, right? Somebody could the be judge yeah. tell, you know, with the right d- direction, general counsel, you can be informed, you can assert the rights of your client, but you can't go tell every employee that there's an investigation underway. I mean, you could do some things to preserve not the old method, but the values that are timeless, and that's the question. I think all that makes sense. I, I up to now, we have not tried to reshape the Fourth Amendment to address those issues, which are uniquely susceptible to uh, the kind of arbitrariness that you can have in a statute uh, and that you can't have when you're uh, announcing constitutional doctrine. So I think the Supreme Court would be crazy to say we've, we've decided to rethink uh, the third-party doctrine, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that Congress shouldn't. Think about it. Well, and, and they have. They've, they've written lots of statutes that trench on the third-party doctrine, and we're mostly happy with them. Uh, remember, too, the ECPA, the mm-hmm. kind of primary statute in this space, what was substantively amended in a meaningful way a long time ago. Right. You know, before cloud services had reached the state that they have reached. And so uh, I agree with you. It may not be the court, it may be Congress that is best suited to balance the competing interests and find what the right balance is. Let me, let me ask an, another kind of uh, related issue because you're out there uh, internationally. Uh, I have been struck, and we talked about it today uh, uh, earlier, uh, by the number of countries in Europe in particular that are saying, you know, um, we think this encryption problem is serious and there needs to be a law that deals with it, and uh, the direction in which they're working is either there has to be some kind of way to decrypt at the instance of law enforcement, or at a minimum, there needs to be an obligation on companies not to uh, uh, refuse to decrypt if they have capabilities. Uh, um, Italy, Slovakia, Germany, France, the UK sort of uh, uh, have all kind of gone well past where the point that, that Tim Cook would be comfortable with and probably past the point that uh, President Obama would be comfortable with. Uh, uh, and then when you add in China, you add in Russia, you add in Turkey, uh, uh, countries that are almost certainly going to be enthusiastic about that. It, it be, makes me wonder whether um, the campaign to say no back doors ever for law enforcement is actually losing ground because of all the publicity. So, first of all, I think taxonomy matters. And I never talk about this as a back door. It's mm-hmm. a front door. Yep. I mean, if we're yeah, going to have enough. an access system, it should be transparent. People should know how it works and why it works. That's one. The second thing is you were involved in the old Clipper debate. I was debate, indeed, yes. As was I. And it's amazing to me how Snowden is left us where we are, I yeah. think. And I say that because when we had the Clipper debate in the 90s, those of us in law enforcement, I was in justice at the time, were like, if the U.S. relaxes export controls on strong crypto, the floodgates will open. And even back then, while there was a lot of concern about wiretapping, I was actually more concerned about stored data. Yes. Because we only did a 1,000 wiretaps a year at the federal level. The U.S. Right. courts had the reports. But we're running into computers in every search. Right. You know, but, but not so much Internet communications. That's, that's right. correct. And so, in any event, the U.S. eventually relaxed export controls and the floodgates opened, but the flood never arrived. Right. 
And it was really in a post-Snowden world where everyone said, well, you need to encrypt everything all the time, end right. to end. And that has really um, catalyzed the debate, in my view. And it's been, a, in many ways, the arguments are the same ones that we had, you know, 20 years ago. It's really. kind of embarrassing. <laughs> it, it shows how timeless these inserts are. Well, and part of it is, you know, the, 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 the guys who won that debate, which the uh, industry and the libertarian groups uh, uh, are recycling art- arguments that don't actually work uh, today because they won last time and like generals, they want to refight the same war. So all this claim that this will be bad for U.S. industry if the U.S. does something about this is silly because we're not going to do it through export controls. We're going to do it by regulating anybody who sells products in the United States. And uh, it could be Germans who are trying to sell stuff as well as Americans. So th- those some of the arguments are don't belong in the, in the debate anymore. But I agree, by and large, it's I ne- I'll never trust government. This is the road to tyranny versus uh, uh, child porn and uh, murder victims. And I think terrorism changes the equation yes. in, in important ways. I think it's important to separate out, in my view, um, the philosophical debates mm-hmm. from the technical challenges um, and recognize that in many of these areas, the debate is based on speculation, not facts, because we just don't have the facts. I'll explain what I mean. So the philosophical debate, there are really two. There's security versus privacy mm-hmm. and security versus security. Right. Um, the security versus privacy debate really has two flavors in my view. One is, you know, if you have front doors and crypto access, you invade the privacy of the person's communications. I think the short answer to that on an individual basis is if the governments have – if you have a democratic government with an independent judiciary with a court order, right. the Constitution kind of made that choice. But the problem is, depending on how you implement any solution, you might impact the privacy of people who are not suspected. If you have a crappy implementation. Or or master key, you know, where if you lose the key, everyone's communications. It's the needle haystack arguments, kind of. But um, then there's the security versus security issue, which is we need crypto for strong security. And if we create weaknesses, we create security weaknesses. Um, and so those debates are partially. So, so I, 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 I'll just ask you this because this always struck me as a compelling argument against that line of analysis, which is, uh, um, you have, you update my computer every Tuesday of the first Tuesday of every month, if I remember right. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you do it just by reaching in and saying to my computer, run this code, trust this code. Um, a, which means you do have access, direct access to my computer, uh, uh, using a key that, if compromised, would be the end of the world for the security of my computer and every other Windows computer on the planet. Um, Hopefully not the end of the world, but it would be very bad. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm sure that what you do is you really protect that key very carefully. Yeah, uh, why is it any different? I mean, you you. Th- you feel that the risk there is worthwhile because of the security value of being able to update computers, and I agree. Um, can't you do the same analysis in the context of law enforcement? You say, we need a key. We need to protect that key. 
But on balance, the risks of compromise of that key are um, offset by the value of the security from murder and child abduction and everything else that uh, are prevented by having good law enforcement. Well, just to be clear, this is why you now need to move into the technical discussion and not the philosophical one. But from a, let me address the philosophical point first. Yes, we have a key, and yes, we can update your machine, but people have agreed to that because they want to be secure and they want new features. They didn't say, and we want you to give the government access. That would really make us happy. And so you get into this philosophical debate about whether people should have unbreakable safes and other things. But when you move to the technical side, I don't think people are being quite nuanced enough because they're often talking about two states of data, like clear text, plain text, or encrypted data. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's three states of data. There's plain text, which is bad because it can be stolen. It's not protected well. There's encrypted data with no key recovery, and that's dangerous too. Yes, right. And then there's encrypted stored data with key recovery. And, in fact, most products that provide, like our BitLocker, there is key recovery built in, and the reason for this is that, you know. I think I have a printout of that endless that key. recovery key. Yeah. Right. Well, but my, my, you know, when my mother was alive, she was my canonical example of the consumer, you know, and I was her help desk and I just <laughs> yes. knew that call was coming that said, I can't access any of the family photos or my will or anything else. And I go, well, what'd you do? Nothing. I got this new machine and it's wonderful. And I go, where's the old machine? Oh, I threw that out. And I said, you know, do, did you escrow your key? And she would go, key? I mean, you could see yes. this conversation yes. coming. And so, you know, therefore you build in key recovery. And in the stored context, now you get into the question of, okay, it's actually, does that create risk? Sure, because bad guys go after your encrypted data and the key, right? right. Whatever you do just changes your risk profile and your threat modeling. Um, but then when you talk about communications, which government's also very worried about, when people have ephemeral communications, they have no intent to ever recover it. Right. And so they and can therefore have. therefore they're you know, not going right. to look for products that have key recovery built. And then the other thing is, if you think about things like perfect forward secrecy, where every communication has its own key, that's a great security benefit because if a key is compromised, you only lose the one conversation. But it also means you've got billions of keys being generated all the time. And so you kind of have to move from the philosophical debate to technically what's possible. Um, and, you know, even if you can resolve those things, then there's this third point I mentioned earlier, which is people say, well, if American products had key recovery, their business would be harmed, you know, internationally. Uh, by how much? Right. Do we know? Oh, by the way, if you build in key recovery, the terrorists will just download non-recoverable products from the Internet and they'll all circumvent it. Okay, well, we how had, much? Right, exactly. We had 25 years during which that was possible and it didn't happen that much. Right, and we do know most people accept the defaults in the products and they don't take extra steps. Some people do, mm -hmm. and not just criminals. You know, privacy advocates who are right. concerned might take extra steps too, and that's fine. And, but when you get into, okay, what would be the real impact of doing something? Everyone opines, but we really don't have any data. And then the other thing is, you know, everyone's here is focused on the debate in the U.S., but the U.S. isn't going to be the first mover. I mean, Russia already has a key escrow law. Right. And so I don't know how it's going to play out. The challenge is the reason we're in this debate 
is because like last time, we're all trying to balance four interests, security and privacy, public safety and national security. And all four interests have merit. We all care about all four. As a company, yep, absolutely. I and my customers want to be safe and they want national security. They also want computer security and personal privacy. Yep. And, you know, we just have conflicting interests. And it's very hard. Internally, to yes. But I also think it's important to think about the right scoping, too. I mean, sometimes, you know, the government has said we care about all four things. Sure. But I've yet to see them put forward a proposal that improves computer security and privacy in the encryption debate. Right. But they do a lot on improving computer security. In the encryption debate. Well, okay. Where has someone said, we need these front doors, but here's how we should think about doing it in a way that actually increases privacy and security. Well, we know why they're not doing that, because the last time they did it was the clipper chip, and uh, that was just the signal for people to go around uh, uh, looking for something that was wrong with the chip, uh, and they ultimately found something that they pretended was a flaw, uh, and uh, lots of people uh, improved their um, visibility by by pointing to that, and then it was treated as, oh, well, that was discredited. I saw it had a flaw, so obviously the government doesn't know what it's doing. So the government, I think, wisely is not trying to design a solution here because uh, whatever solution they design will be immediately discredited. Well, I'm, I'm not suggesting they define a technical solution. That's usually a mistake. Right. Um, and because industry can probably innovate better if we know what the outcomes are. Yeah. Um, but having said that, um, the government, though, will make kind of broad statements like um, encryption. We need key recovery and encryption. So, okay, I have a banking app on my phone, and it's encrypted. Do you yeah. really want key recovery in that application? Right. No, there's no need for it. Absolutely exactly. none. They can get the banking records. And do you want key recovery in SCADA systems? Right. I mean, but they never come out and say, we want to, here's our concern. And because we're worried about computer security more broadly, we're going to limit it. We, we really want to focus on scoping. Let's have a scoping discussion before we have any other discussion kind of thing. And they generally don't do that. I will say it is fascinating to me that government, you know, when we, you and I started, the government was laissez-faire, right? Internet, yes. great engine of economic growth and innovation. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. And we got involved early because we were in the cybercrime arena and bad guys were going to the internet. Of course, it's untraceable, anonymous, globally That's connected sweet. with rich targets. Yeah. It's like sweet. But now governments have four distinct roles with the internet and it's helpful to kind of bucketize this stuff to think about the implications because First of all, they're a large enterprise. Right. Their customers are citizens, but they want online benefits and, you know, all that great stuff. And like all enterprises, they are struggling to secure the enterprise. Right. Then second, they are the protectors of critical infrastructure, personal privacy and security. So with their regulatory hat on, they think about, okay, how do we protect all this stuff for the common good? Mm-hmm. Third, they're exploiters of the Internet. Sure. They have espionage programs. Cyber war is a domain of warfare. They need capabilities. Stuxnet had four mm-hmm. zero days in Windows to exploit. Um, and so they have this offensive thing, and they have the defensive and offensive. So you see Michael Daniel do yep. a very good blog on equities, but they have to deal with this. And then fourth, they want access to data. 
and lots of it for public safety and national security. Right. They search warrants, subpoenas, front, front door access, yes. front door access to all of that stuff. Um, and so they have these four different roles, and it's you know challenging to figure out. How do you optimize for all four things? Right. You know, I remember Art Coviello at one of the, mm-hmm. who you know well at one of the RSA conferences saying, post Stuxnet, you know, governments need to renounce cyber weapons because they're dangerous. And we can talk about norms in a minute, but, um, renounce cyber weapons. If it's a domain of war, right. you'd be you, kind you of. Don't war. do a lot of that. Uh, right. Exactly. And, and, could you imagine actually being in some sort of conflict and the commander in chief or the general says, I need to take out their whatever? You have any cyber weapons? And, no, we had them all fixed. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, in utopia, that's beautiful, but in the real world, that's unlikely. Yeah. And so how to think about these competing interests. Like they want privacy and security, but they want access to lots of data. And yes, there are ways to get access to data without violating privacy search warrants and all that stuff. Um, but depending on how things are engineered and how much access they get, you saw the public reaction to and the congressional reaction to the Verizon program, the 215 yeah. program, and the international reaction to the broader 702 surveillance. So trying thinking about governments of having these four pieces that are like levers, and sometimes you pull one and the other one moves a little bit. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, it's, that's a, a very nuanced view of the world. Uh, I will tell the Trump transition team they should call you to become a uh, cyber security czar, right? I, and I predict you will turn them down. Um, uh, we're, we aren't going to get have, have time to do norms. Uh, that, we'll, but okay. we'll call you back and, and talk about uh, a very interesting approach to uh, international norms. You know, kind of self-serving, as you might expect from Microsoft, but uh, still a, 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 a sophisticated analysis of what kinds of norms ought to be considered. Uh, I, and I will challenge you to explain that when we next meet why it's self-serving to create a safer internet. Uh, it's good for business, <laughs> sure. Um, that's great. I don't necessarily view that as a bad thing. It's a deal. It's a deal. Is there anything uh, you're going to be doing, uh, public events or other papers you've got coming out that uh, our listeners ought to know about? Uh, well, uh, we did publish recently a Norms paper, which is worth a look. It is, and I will say it, it has a fascinating proposal uh, uh, for enforcement of norms, uh, which I think is uh, – extremely ambitious, but, you know, in some contexts might be doable. Uh, and uh, um, uh, so it is definitely worth reading, if only for the uh, analogy to the IAEA uh, and uh, uh, the invocation of the UN Security Council. So uh, we will bring you back to talk about that. I'd love to be back. Thanks. So thank you to Scott Charney, Michael Vadis, Maury Shank. Uh, uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to comment. Uh, uh, if you want to uh, uh, send your suggestions for future topics or your comments on past uh, topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We always read them. Uh, and we're, of course, delighted to get feedback in the form of good reviews on iTunes and other podcast aggregators. Uh, this has been Episode 141 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson and, of course, Rihanna. Uh, coming up, we will be joined by Matthew Green, the Assistant 
professor at Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute. We hope you'll join us as we interview him and others uh, providing insight into the latest events in technology security, privacy, and government.